Father, this is your word. Instruct our hearts through your Spirit's power, speaking through me. Bless not only the reading, but the proclamation of your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's just one verse today. Revelation 1, verse 19. The, re- the verse reveals what John is to write. And so the question is, what is John to write? Verse 19 says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. When you look at the grammar of this sentence in the English, it seems pretty clear, right? What you have seen, past tense. Um, Write down what you are seeing now, present tense, and write down what will take place in the future. So it is a simple sequential outline to lay out the framework for what has, is, and will take place. Bada bing, bada boom, the sermon's over. We can take up the offering now. (laughs) And you're thinking, no, this doesn't feel right. This man has never preached a 30-second sermon in his entire life, in his entire ministry. Even before I was in the ministry as, as someone in high school, I never presented something in 30 seconds or less. So, yes, there's, this is not quite right. <laughs> this is an existential question. John is looking at existence. Not from an earthly perspective governed by time. He is looking at the heavenly eternal perspective that governs time. Oive, you say, our heads are already starting to hurt when you talk like that. Can we just stick with the short sermon already? But I want us to delve deeper into what's really going on here. To see what, what John must write as he beholds human history laid out before him in relationship to the eternal perspective of heaven. You know, for most people in this world, their perspective of existence is what they can interpret through their own understanding. Some would call themselves pragmatists. They are people who consider themselves to be very practical and and everything is processed through the senses. And if you're looking at matter or energy or something like that, its existence is incumbent upon it being sensed. If you cannot perceive of it through the senses, in your mind it doesn't exist. That type of reality doesn't exist. So you have that, that on one side, and there are also other people who are more theoretical in their approach, striving to put things in perspective by use of a logical reasoning methodology to understand their existence. But has any one of these, these are just a couple examples and there are far more throughout human history, has any one of these attempting this ever brought forth a comprehensive presentation that is not questioned as incomplete, as not perfect? I'm not saying there has not been some good efforts put forth in this area trying to understand our existence 
as there have been some very dedicated and capable thinkers throughout the ages. But these thinkers and other attempts to understand and explain our existence will always fall short because this reasoning, regardless of method, is under the governance of time. No matter how much you and I grasp at the eternal perspective, we are limited because we are creatures under the governance of time. Time is the foundational instrument for the finite world. Hence God says to Job in chapter 38 verse 4, he asks him this question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Tell me if you can understand this. This is such an incredibly profound question that God asks. God is asking who put the earth in its proper place in time? Who set up time as the earth's governor? Did you do this, Job? Of course not, because you do not transcend time as I do. You are also under the governance of time along with the rest of creation. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can go to Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8 starts off saying, there is a time for everything. Do you hear this? There's a time for everything. And a season for every activity under heaven. Here it is, a season for every activity under heaven. Notice the author does not say in heaven but under heaven. These seasonal activities are governed by the eternal power and wisdom of God in the heavens. Hence, in this world, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You hear this and you say, wait a second, Pastor. If these, are, if these sequential events are governed by heaven, then doesn't time exist there as well? Well, let's look again at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. The first command that God gave, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ gave to John, was actually in verse 11. And it's the same command that's, that's recorded in verse 19. That command is in the aorist active imperative. And the aorist is basically a timeless tense in the Greek. It really just looks at events as they're unfolding, not in respective of of sequence or anything else. They they just look like a snapshot. It's like if you were to to take you're at a picnic and and uh, or we're at the church picnic. Somebody takes a picture of somebody doing a game, and that picture is frozen in time. It's taken in the past, but you can look at it in the present. You can pull it out again look at it in the future. You can pull it out again and look at it in the future's future. It, it, it really is not connected in time, per se. It's something that has happened, but it continues to exist. 
And that's what's going on here with this first perspective. This is what John sees, he beholds, but it's not connected to time per se because he's looking at the eternal Christ. It's, it's something that's been initiated, but it has ongoing effects into the present and into the future and even into eternity. So write what you have beheld. It's important here when we see this that John is not describing, in verses 12 through 18, he's looking at the risen Lord, but John is not describing someone who is under the governance of time as he is. The risen Lord Jesus says to John in the latter part of verse 17, going into 18, he says, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You hear what he says there? I am the first and the last, revealing that he is before time and after time, which is his way of saying that he is eternal. Commentator G.K. Beale writes, these expressions refer to God's sovereignty over history, especially in fulfillment of prophecy and in bringing world affairs to a climax in salvation and judgment. God is transcendent over time and governs governs the way history proceeds because he is in control of its inception and conclusion. Jesus also says he is the living one. Christ Jesus described himself as one who is living continually even though he entered into time and space in his incarnation, taking upon himself human flesh. And he was crucified, died and was buried. He was in the grave for three days. Then Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Even though Jesus experienced death in his ministry here on earth, he is alive forever. How brief of a moment when you think about eternity. We look at the gruesome nature of of Jesus going to the cross. But we don't understand what's behind it, His willingness to go to the cross. You have the eternal one, eternity past. He exists forever. He lays aside His glory in heaven so that He could become incarnated into human flesh. And He enters into this world for a moment compared to eternity. He is separated from God the Father because He took upon Himself our sins for a moment. Three days is just even barely a moment in the grand scheme of eternity. And so He's saying, yes, in this life, when I was incarnated in this world, I died. I died and I I proclaimed it is finished. The the mission that, that my Heavenly Father had sent me on was completed. Now I'm, I'm alive again and I'm forever again in the presence of my Heavenly Father. And that's never going to change ever again. But He did that so that we could be where He is. So when the risen Lord Jesus tells John to therefore write what you have seen, Let's look at what he's first referring to. He's referring to the risen Christ. 
Verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 1 are basically introductory remarks. Verse 9 is, is John's earthly perspective. Verses 10 and 11 is what John is told to do. And then we have verses 12 through 18, which is what John sees in the vision. John sees the risen Lord Jesus. Is there any reference to this in the Old Testament? Well, yes, there is. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, God reveals the Christ to all humanity through the most powerful man in the world at that time, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar receives it in in a dream. And he makes a, a bold pronouncement to his wise men. He says, unless you can tell me what my dream is and interpret it, I'm going to tear you to pieces. The person who can do that, I will lavish upon him gifts because he knew in his heart that this was divinely inspired, that this was given to him by God. And he was terrified. This was a situation of the utmost importance to King Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, the magicians and the wise men say, no king has ever made a request like this. But God revealed it to Daniel. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is without hearing a word and interprets it for him. You know the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a large statue. This is Daniel chapter 2, if you want to look there. Uh, With the head being made of pure gold, the chest and arms were made of silver, the belly and the thighs were made of bronze, and the legs were made of iron, and the feet were made of uh, both iron and clay. And the statue represents four kingdoms, four empires, if you will. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire, The chest and arms of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire that comes up after Babylon. The bronze stomach and and thighs represents the Greek or Grecian Empire. And then the legs made of iron represents the Roman Empire. And then the feet of clay and iron represents the breaking apart of the Roman Empire into different leaders. So this is what's going on. Daniel 2 verses 34 through 35 states... While you were watching this statue, and and this is observing as in a vision, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. What type of pieces? At the same time, and, and they became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The rock is not brought forth by human effort, is it? Or even human wisdom. All these kingdoms are represented in this massive statue displaying the wisdom and work of man to glorify themselves through idolatry. The rock is not something fabricated by man, but brought forth by God. When it is used to destroy the other kingdoms, it does not grow into a statue or a palace or a temple, but into a mountain looking to the new creation of heaven and earth. It also has a view to Mount Zion, the mountain of God. The rock of Christ 
is Christ establishing the kingdom of God and returning back to God the glory that he had from the beginning before Satan and sin and man rebelled against him. The image of the other kingdoms being broken to pieces as fine dust and then swept away by the wind like chaff is part of the curse God gave to Adam in the garden after he, he rebelled against God. This is Genesis 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Regardless of the vision and effort, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, consumed by death and time. They rise and fall at the hand of God, and we cannot miss this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 through 38. This is a slave speaking to a king. This is a slave speaking to the most powerful man in the world. And this is what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Who has given it to him? The God of heaven. Not the gods of this world. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, He has made you ruler over them all. He has given you dominion over this world. You are the head of gold. But this head of gold will not last. The kingdom that will last forever is the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. So John's first vision beholds the eternal authority and power of the risen Christ Jesus, wherein his kingdom, his kingdom is still growing while the Roman Empire, the fourth empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is still at work in the world. You have the spiritual on one side, the eternal, the unseen things of God at work on one side and the seen things that are temporal working on the other side. They're in, they're in confluence with each other. They're interacting with each other. But this one is being established forever, this one for time. And when time runs out, like the dust of flesh, like the dust of buildings that have been destroyed, it will be blown away by the wind never to be remembered again. So Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 19a, Therefore write what you have seen. John sees the risen Christ and His sovereignty over history. Hence chapter 1 of Revelation is expressing that Old Testament prophecies about the end of the age have already begun to be fulfilled. Especially in line with Daniel 2. John sees the growth of Christianity even though, again, it is being influenced heavily by the Roman Empire and persecuted to a great extent. These are words of encouragement to the Christians who are being persecuted under Roman rule that Christ is on the throne. The risen Christ also commands John to write down what you see. This is the verb see in the present indicative, meaning we are no longer looking at a snapshot, but now a video presentation. This is what's unfolding before your eyes. This is what you're witnessing with all these visions that are before you right now. Write down all that you see. 
Okay, that's pretty straightforward. All the scenes in the heavens unfolding before John's eyes. The third tense is not on the verb see, but on the verb become. Become. It's in the aorist tense, and it is also an infinitive, which means that there are some parts of the vision that exist in the heavenly realm but have not entered into history as of yet. In other words, John is seeing things unfold in the heavens that have not entered into history yet. Kind of lets you know that God knows the plans before they happen, doesn't it? Kind of makes Ephesians 1 a lot more understandable. Think about the angels, if I can give you a snapshot of this from from Scripture. Think about Luke chapter 2 and Jesus is being born into this world and the angels start pouring out of heaven. There's one who gives a message to the shepherds, you know, that Jesus is born and then they just start pouring out of heaven. One after another, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe millions of them, and they cannot hold back. They start shouting, glory to God in the highest and peace to man upon whom his favor rests. Because they know ahead of time what's taking place. They know the reason Jesus has come into the world. They know his mission. They know that he's going to be successful because he is God and he is greater than the evil in this world. And they are rejoicing because they know what's coming even though we don't. Even though man did not. Yes, the shepherds wanted to see this glorious thing that had taken place, but they had not the understanding that the angels in heaven had. These are things that have not yet come that God knows, that the angelic realm knows, that the heavenly hosts know, but have not come into history as of yet. They are still to come. So this command in Revelation 1 verse 19, to write what you have seen, what you see now and what will take place later, is not a simple sequential outline, but an eternal view which lines up with verses 4 and 8 of Revelation chapter 1, in which Jesus is described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. These three clauses in verse 19 then express not only eternal duration, but a revelation which transcends historical time and uncovers the meaning of history and existence in its totality. Have I said a mouthful in that sentence? Hence, what is John to write? He is to write what he sees. But what he sees is the eternal perspective, not the temporal one that we're accustomed to, but the eternal one. And I look forward to getting into this as we go through the book of Revelation. Amen.